Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to part two of the Information Access Committee 411 session. And boy, do we have a panel for you this afternoon. I'm really, really excited to bring this to you today. Before we get started, let's introduce Monica, who is going to help us with raised hands and the like, and she's got some information for us. My name is Monica, and the beginning CEU code is 79034. That's 79034. Excellent. Thank you very, very much. You're welcome. And uh, we have a lot of our uh, Information Access Committee members here today. And But we have a lot to get to, so without further ado, I'm going to hand this over to Ray, who's going to uh, kick us off here and then lead us into our facilitator for this session. Take it away, Ray. Sounds good. Thank you, Jeff, and uh, thank you to everybody for being here. Um, and thank you to the Information Access Committee. As Officer Liaison to the committee, I, I thank the committee for the good work that you've done over the last couple of years under the aw- awesome leadership of uh, Jeff Bishop and Judy Dixon. Uh, it's been uh, fantastic uh, to be a part of it. So the pandemic over the past uh, 18 months, whatever it's been, has brought on new challenges to many of us in different professions. Well, we in the Information Access Committee got to thinking, man, how hard has it been or what are the challenges been to provide rehabilitation services, teaching, counseling, those sorts of things to folks remotely? And so, and what kind of access challenges have there been? So this afternoon, we have a very esteemed panel to talk with us and to introduce them and uh, get us going. I am proud to introduce the co-chair of ACB's Rehabilitation Task Force, Chris Hunsinger. Hello, folks. Um, I am the co-chair of the Rehabilitation Task Force, and I'm here to um, bring our panelists uh, up to you. If we were actually live and in person, I would say we'll go through the 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 table clockwise or anti-clockwise or counterclockwise or whatever, but um, I'm going to ask each of the panelists to um, introduce themselves and talk a little bit about who they are and what they do, and you may well know some of these names. I wonder why. Um, We have Megan Conway, who uh, works with the Helen Keller National Institute, I mean, National Center. We have uh, David Kingsbury, who works at the Carroll Center, and we have Joe Todd, who um, works as a contractor in Michigan, delivering services. Um, So these people are on the front lines. They're the people who have still had to get the services out to people, teach them how to do things. And I guess the safest thing to say is, let's start with um, Megan uh, so that she can tell us how she has been interacting with her uh, dual sensory loss clientele. Hi there, everyone. She uh, is. <laughs> this is Megan Conway, and uh, I am a research and accessibility specialist at the Helen Keller 
National Center for Deafblind Youth and Adults. I also am deafblind myself, which for me means that I am hard of hearing and legally blind. I've been working at Helen Kellen National Center for about two years. Prior to that, I was a professor of disability studies at the University of Hawaii for 18 years. Uh, I'm actually based out of California, and my job was virtual before I, uh, before the pandemic, uh, so I can talk uh, a bit to that as well, and I'm very pleased to be here today. Okay, so now David Kingsbury, who is a force at uh, Bay State and all kinds of other parts of ACB, can tell us where he's coming from. Hey, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Again, my name is David Kingsbury. I am an assistive technology instructor uh, at the Carroll Center for the Blind. That's in Newton, Massachusetts, about five miles outside of uh, Boston. Um, and I've been uh, I've been a trainer there uh, for about five and a half years or so. And about 10 years before that, I was actually a client at the Carroll Center getting rehab services. So I've, I've seen the place from both sides, both as a consumer and as a uh, provider of services. Type of training I do, I'm, I'm uh, completely blind. So I, I'm a, uh, most of the training I do is, is JAWS with um, JAWS on the PC. So JAWS with Windows, the Microsoft Office Suite, web browsing, a few other things. I also uh, train voiceover on the iPhone, um, and I've also written a, a couple of books related to some of um, some of those training issues. And when, when I'm not doing that, um, as of a couple of months ago, May, I became the uh, the president of the uh, the Bay State Council of the Blind. You all know Brian Charlson, of course, and uh, Brian was president before me, and so I'm now uh, president of that. So these are some of the things that keep me busy. And again, it's great to be here uh, with you all today. Okay. And last but not least, just alphabetically last, we have Joe Todd. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm glad, uh, you know, I'm used to being last. So that's what my partner tells me. I'm always last. So anyway, going on from there, I am a certified vision rehabilitation therapist and I'm working for the Bureau of Services for Blind Persons here in Michigan. That's our rehabilitation state agency. And I also work for the Michigan Department of Education, Low Incident Outreach. I do some with the kids, but mostly the practice is with the teachers, getting them up to speed with their access technology. Primarily, my practice is access technology, but I am a CVRT, so I have done some activities of daily living in, in that particular role. So am I, I am a person who is, is on that sideline in between. I have Usher syndrome. So that means uh, like the other panelists, I'm a person that is legally blind, although I do have some functional vision. And I also have the hearing issue as well. So I've been a client at Texas, and I've been a client up here in Michigan. So again, I've had it from both sides. I train primarily with computers. I can do JAWS. I do Zoom text. I do Fusion. I do the Mac. I do the Voice Dream Reader. Uh, so you name it, and I've usually got my hands in it. That's probably due to the fact that I was a respiratory therapist before I came here 
in this field and I, I like my machines, you know, I like my technology. So thank you. All right. Now here's a real nice open-ended question and I'll take it all in turn for each of you. And the question is, what has happened over the past year and how has your workload, how have things changed with you with service delivery? So, Megan, do you want to talk about that? Sure. Uh, this is Megan. And I, I do want to talk um, both about my own experiences, but, but broadly about the Helen Keller National Center, because I, I think there, there was a lot of things that the organization learned as a whole that are uh, Im important to share. Uh, as I said before, my, my job was virtual from the beginning. So I was, I was extremely lucky, actually, compared to a lot of my colleagues. Uh, I had the technology that I needed already in place, um, you know, a variety of different devices. I had a lot of experience teaching online and working online. Uh, in my prior work at the university, I taught um, classes online and actually did a lot of national work uh, from Hawaii that involved uh, a lot of virtual communication. So I was, I was well-placed to make the transition uh, into virtual services. Um, and actually, I would say in, in a lot of respects for me personally, the fact that everybody was having to operate virtually uh, really increased the effectiveness and, and ease of my own work. Uh, because I was included in everything. You know, everybody was having to meet on Zoom. Um, there wasn't these instances where they say, oh yeah, we have, you know, we have this meeting in person and here's the notes. Um, everything was, um, for me, much more inclusive. Um, but for the organization as a whole, it was a huge, huge transition. Uh, Helen Keller National Center um, does a lot of rehabilitation work in New York uh, on Long Island at their campus there. Um, so typically um, deafblind folks uh, will come there and they will actually reside there from anywhere from um, a couple of weeks, two months. Um, there's also professional development activities that, that happen there. Um, and there's very intense services that are provided, um, everything from you know, uh, learning Braille, communication access, uh, recreation, independent living, employment skills. I mean, there's there's a whole comprehensive program that the center is designed to deliver in person. Uh, however, there are also field services. So we have um, field representatives all over the country that um, up until uh, the pandemic provided mostly referral information resources. Um, but we were starting to move in the direction of providing more direct services in people's communities before the pandemic. The pandemic really just switched, switched the light on um, in terms of bringing national um, services into focus. Um, obviously, a lot of staff just had to completely move from say, providing orientation and mobility services um, in person to figuring out how the heck to do them online um, for folks that have just a wide variety of capabilities in terms of uh, communication and uh, technology access and so forth. Um, so I would say in general, it was just, it was like, a sh it was a shock. I mean, I just remember that, um, it, you know, in my uh, 
in my opinion, that the center really did manage to um, to just go for it. I mean, really, you're faced with, you know, are we going to continue to be funded to provide services or not? So people had to figure it out. And it and, and I think that in in most cases that was that was quite successful. It it, it meant a lot of shifting of roles, a lot of creativity, um, a lot of thinking beyond. Oh well, you know, it's impossible for somebody who uses tactile ASL to um, participate in a virtual course. To thinking about how are we going to do this? How are we going to give everybody access to these services and get paid to do it? I'm going to stop there. I mean, I have a lot of detailed things I could go into, but I just to give a sort of a general scope um, of where I'm coming from, it was just, it was very interesting to me to observe how um, an organization like Helen Keller could, could make that shift um, to, to virtual services. Okay, David, now it's your turn. <laughs> okay, great. Well, like, like the Helen Keller Institute, the Carroll Center is, you know, essentially a, um, a, uh, a residential facility. So really, uh, but but I would not say necessarily with, with say the national focus that Helen Keller perhaps has a bit more. So we were largely limited up until the pandemic, um, you know, to training people residentially, as well as perhaps those who could, you know, were close enough to the center so that they could uh, commute to it. And I'll just purely, I'll just talk about the technology side of uh, Carroll Center. We also do you know, other types of rehab training, O&M and, and, and the like. Um, for, for several years before the pandemic hit, we had been talking, you know, back and forth a bit about, you know, gee, we should do more of this virtual type training, remote training. There are these technologies like Zoom that I sort of was vaguely aware of and was always sort of a rainy day project. One of these days I'll learn Zoom or something like that. And I did learn a little bit more of it as the pandemic was approaching, not, not thinking that really I'm going to be using that all of the time. But uh, we, we had had back and forth about, uh, about uh, doing more remote training, but really had never done uh, much in any serious uh, way, I would say. And then the pandemic hit. And I was, I have to say, I was astonished in a good way uh, at how smooth the transition was. And uh, like Megan said, sort of a light went off. And it's like, boy, um, if I thought through this logically, this wouldn't have been that hard a thing to do uh, back when we had a choice. You know, there's, there's nothing like having no choice as an incentive to, to make you do something. Um, but, you know, when I teach face-to-face -face people, what do I do? Again, and, and I'm completely blind. I, I'm sitting across a room from somebody. They're on their laptop. I'm on the other side of the room on my own computer. I'll ask them, do, do this or that in JAWS. Their JAWS is talking. I listen to their JAWS. They do it. Then I ask them to do something else and so on. Um, well, that works perfectly with Zoom uh, because I asked them to do something. They're sharing their computer sound and it works. On occasion, I might want to share some files with them. So I would have a thumb drive. I'd hand it to them. They'd stick it to their computer. They'd copy files onto the computer and then they would use them. Um, now I simply send a Dropbox link to them and they download it and all of that works. Um, there might be times also 
when you know having a little problem and I need to check out their computer, it's a little bit beyond them and I need to explore around a bit. So in a physical setting, I would just wheel myself over on my little wheelie uh, chair and I'd you know, take over their screen and uh, or their keyboard and I'd do whatever it was that I needed to do. Um, and for that, I used Jaws Tandem. And then finally, there may be situations where there's a there's a technological problem of some sort that frankly is beyond me. I mean, I'm not um, a super whiz with the finer points of technology. So when I was in uh, the center, I would ask our IT guy to come down, Roger, who can fix anything, and he would uh, uh, he would do whatever he needed to do, and he would uh, fix it. So for those types of things, I would ask them to call the Microsoft Disability Desk, which one um, gave excellent um, excellent service, and then secondly, even if they didn't uh, need to do that, it, it was it was a good experience for people you're training to call something like the Microsoft Disability Desk to, to begin to see that, you know, hey, they can handle their own problems and so on. So um, again, uh, I went overnight from really just training face-to-face 100% of the time to overnight 100% doing remotely. That was about March 10th or something like that. And I trained remotely pretty solidly for, I think, more or less a full year without any interruption. So the transition was very um, was very smooth. Um, of course, it's, it's not just a, uh, a one-person show. Um, you know, the backup from the Carroll Center was, 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 uh, was excellent. They kept us constantly up to date on, you know, what the, you know, what, what they were doing in terms of dealing with the pandemic um, based on what the governor of the state was uh, giving out as guidelines. So uh, the transition was, uh, was very smooth. Again, I, I also have some more things that I could say, but I'll hold those uh, till a little bit later. Okay, Joe, can you talk about how your, how your situation uh, might have changed because of, um, because of the pandemic? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Now, it's interesting because our two other panelists were talking about residential centers. And here in Michigan, we do have a, our own training center in Kalamazoo, Michigan, where um, a lot of the our clients went and were trained. But they also had a process of itinerant people that went out and trained in the home for whatever reason that they can't make it to the residential center. And so it was interesting what happened was kind of a hybrid system here in Michigan. So what happened is that the um, COVID took place, they decided to, to close the training center and they depended on their vendors, you know, be it O&M, be it uh, C, uh, VRT services or active day living or accessibility to go out and see their clients. Now we, we took precautions, we were wearing masks, we got consent for that. And <laughs> so we, we became the, the, really the backbone of that of services for our state for quite a while. And then, then they started more into a hybrid system. So what happened is, is that I've been going out and setting up systems for our clients and getting all of that stuff ready that, you know, you really need to be there to do it. 
and getting that set. And then after they're comfortable and getting them introduced to it, then the, um, the Kalamazoo training centers are actually taking over and doing remote. Now, interestingly enough, I have been doing that with some of my clients anyway, because of whatever reason has been going on. And I found it to be quite effective, which is really an interesting paradigm shift because the technology committee for the uh, for BSBP was adamant that the that we do it face to face. And I can see that process because there's a lot of things you can do face to face. Now, what's interesting and when you look at this, if we're talking about computer technology, is that the fact that if you can't keyboard you really can't teach them. You really, really at that. I often look at that and think of it like it's trying to do war and peace on a piece of paper without a pencil, you know, and that's what that's our first thing. And that's getting the people to keyboard and get that stuff going on. But almost everything else, as they were saying, you can use your Zoom client or your tandem client for that. And what's interesting from the low vision perspective with Zoom text are, um, you know, you can even teach that, even though, you know, at my, at my level of vision, it is a little hard for me to see what they're doing. But, you know, if they're using Zoom text at that level, you be, you simply just ask them, what are you seeing? You know, you just have those keystrokes down and you know what you're doing with that. And then that worked pretty well. So, like I said, it's been a hybrid system. It's worked really well. And particularly, we have uh, here in Michigan, we have what we call the Upper Peninsula. And that's a really rural area where you don't have many people and you have a lot of traveling time to get to the person uh, and deal with those situations. So, that's really worked well for them. They've been able to get more consistent services because we're able to get out there to them in that way. So. So that's what the situation as Michigan has been, been a kind of a hybrid system. And I really think, I think that we're going to see that perpetuate because they've seen that it works. At least it worked for some clients. Thank you. Thank you. Did you find that there were issues where you had to have, say, family members um, assist the person when you were doing everything remotely? Um, or did you have to call on um, additional help? And what other, you know, what other kinds of services aside from you and them when they would get? I mean, I know you talked about, um, David talked about uh, teaching people how to ask, tell the Microsoft Access people, um, you know, what their problem was and to empower people. Um, but were there times when you just had to rely on, caregivers or other family members and that that's for anybody that wants to answer um this is megan uh speaking definitely um and and i think that uh actually it did surprise us that there were a lot of situations where where we could you know usually figure out a way to give access um in some cases people just did not have the support available um but you know, you had to sort of um, rethink when you're talking about, you know, doing things on your own or being independent or really you had to think more from a framework of the the, the, the main goal is is access. And um, 
both for the deaf, you know, for the deafblind person receiving services or taking part in a class, um, and for uh, professionals at the organization and for family members um, to realize that you know this is just a situation that's um, uh, unique. Um, so there were some of the situations where we used family members, or um, in some cases there were um, there are deafblind people that have. Um, what we call SSPs, support service providers, uh, or interpreters. Their access to those services, though, um, really depended on the state they were in. So um, some states and localities forbade any kind of in-person contact like that, um, particularly there's touch involved, you know, for deafblind people. And then in other locations, they were much more flexible. So in some cases, uh, people did have access to an SSP or an interpreter. So we would utilize those um, services because, you know, the fact is that that for somebody who uses tactile support, there you can absolutely use, you know, uh, a computer with a braille display or what have you, residual hearing and vision they might have if you need to, but there's just no, there's no, no substitute for having somebody right there, you know, to provide tactile access. So in some cases, they, they were able to have that access. Um, in other cases, it was a family member um, who, like, for example, for orientation and mobility services, um, they would, um, the family member would likely like, have a lesson online with, um, with their instructor uh, using, maybe they'd be using an online interpreter, um, and um, or that instructor uh, communicating with them directly, depending on the, the situation. Uh, and then their family member would go with that person and they might film them um, practicing the skills that they had talked about in the O&M lesson and then send that film to the O&M instructor. And then they would discuss, you know, what what strategies to use, what, what worked, what didn't work. Um, so that's one situation where we might use a family member uh, I, I actually taught an advocacy class online during the pandemic, um, several different sessions of that. And so um, sometimes it was just, um, particularly if somebody was not so tech savvy, or maybe they had an intellectual disability as well as deaf blindness, um, or just, you know, one of those moments when you just can't find whatever it is you're using a screen reader and like you just can't find the darn unmute button or whatever. Um, so there was there was definitely instances where a family member was there and they would just help with that, um, you know, one problem, whatever it was, um, and, would, and would support somebody. So uh, there was some of the field stuff, I believe, um, a bit later in the pandemic, um, after that initial where everything really shut down, um, who did start going out again, depending on the state uh, and providing some in-person support. Um, but the over the overwhelmingly, it it really was um, it really was the deafblind person and their technology and um, the instructor doing things online. Yeah, I, I would say there were also you know times when sighted you know uh, uh, help from a sighted family member was needed again the computer's just misbehaving uh we're not hearing anything so maybe somebody could come and quickly take a look see what the screen is saying or whatever um 
It was mentioned earlier, you know, there's certain things that are hard to do remotely. You know, if somebody doesn't have the basic keyboarding skills, that's certainly a a showstopper. Uh, Another thing that I would mention where it's not that feasible or not that effective is if you're training somebody who is brand new to the iPhone or brand new to the iPad using voiceover. And of course, the first thing you need to train them is gestures. And it's pretty hard to talk through finger flicks and, uh, you know, verbally describe how to do the rotor and, and things like that. So that type of training also is pretty hard to do. If, if they know the, uh, some of the basic gestures already, then you can, you can do some, some uh, voiceover things. But if they're brand new to the iPhone, that, that's also pretty difficult to do remotely. Okay. And, and Joe, do you have any yeah, have much experience just, in that area? I was just going to say an amen to that because the gestures, that's really hard to do remotely, you know. Um, and it, you do have difficulty with that if you can't if you can't get on and see what they're doing and if they don't have someone sighted there to kind of help them and do that type of motion talking from the v the the vrt part of it i think a fair amount of stuff we can do but what we have problems with is and i think you guys can picture it is cooking and cutting uh, those, when we're doing that, if we're attempting it with somebody, we feel safe doing it. You're going to have a family member there, a sighted person there to do that. Because that, you know, I've talked with my fellow, fellow VRTs that do a lot of that kind of activities of daily living. And that just, that's something you've got to be there for. It can, you can work it around. You can picture it. You know, if you uh, have a video set up and you have another family member there, it can work, but it just doesn't lend itself by and large, except for special circumstances. And generally, generally, like I said, with the computer technology, if we've got a fair amount of keyboarding skills, you know, you can you that really does well, I think, for most people for most people. And I've had good luck with with guiding people through that process. Because if we look at JAWS, we have a lot of help tech. We've got a lot of documentation and places they can go and pick up stuff if they've got enough technical skills to to get to that. So that's what our challenge has been. Okay. So how did your... How did your caseloads change? How did this, did you guys have differences in uh, statistical expectations, um, et cetera? I guess would be the next kind of question. Did anybody come up with um, new kinds of ways to measure productivity or any of that kind of stuff as well? So I guess I could start with Megan on that. Yeah, um, this is Megan. So, um, in terms of my, my personal, well, actually, what I would say overall, both for myself and for other um, staff and Helen Keller, was that a lot of our roles shifted. Um, so, whatever your, your title was, <laughs> um, went a bit out the window, so that it was really all hands on deck 
Um, there, there were staff who lost their jobs who were like, for example, the residential staff and other staff who, um, well, honestly, if maybe we would have been able to hang on to folks a little longer, we could have been more creative about um, replacing people, I mean, pu putting them in different roles, but there were some staff who lost their job. Um, but, but most staff um, retained their jobs just with different roles. Um, so, um, for example, uh, again, I'm, I'm a research and accessibility specialist, um, but I ended up doing a lot more direct services, professional development. Um, I taught an, an advocacy class, which typically would have been taught at the center. Um, I really, because I have a lot of experience with um, distance education, I was pulled in to um, develop some um, best practices guideline, do some training with staff on accessible uh, distance education, put together some guidelines. Um, for example, um, for your information, we have a, a, a pretty good a guideline for making Zoom accessible and uh, presentations accessible for deafblind people um, that's posted on the, the HKNC website. It's got a, it's a really great resource. Other staff, you know, if, if you were an, an O&M instructor, um, you might be utilized as a communication support person uh, in another class. Uh, we, what we did was we developed these um, national peer, what they called peer learning groups uh, on different topics like O&M, money management, um, interviewing, advocacy, independent living. So there were these topical uh, kind of seminar discussion groups. And so kind of depending on your, again, not your title, but your skills and your experience, you might lead one of those groups, or you might just, you might be a communication support person providing um, uh, note taking or um, texting with someone, uh, providing visual description. So there was, and it was kind of interesting because different staff, like maybe again, you had an interest in some particular topic, like um, I don't know, cooking or whatever it was. Well, you could lead that class, whereas normally that wasn't necessarily your role um, at Helen Keller. So, I think that the the caseload shifted in the sense that it was more evenly distributed across lots of folks who normally might not have a direct. Um, not be providing direct rehabilitation services in the traditional sense uh, before, um, but now we're just called on to to just make <laughs> make it happen and make things work. And and I that was really a, a um, quite a, a big outcome of of the pandemic for the center. Okay, that's that's interesting. Um, so, David, what did you notice different about? either caseloads or any of that kind of stuff as you work through your pandemic experience? Well, a few things changed for me. You know, I'm a technology trainer and a technology trainer is what I remained. I didn't branch out into uh, other areas. But one, one thing is that there's more flexibility now uh, to come up with, identify short, shorter courses. and teach those again and residentially the the main model was to you know have uh, a class small class one two three people 
for a period, a full block of a week or two weeks or four weeks, sometimes as much as six weeks to sort of, uh, you know, give the variations on the sort of, uh, I'd say, sort of the same core curriculum related to JAWS, uh, Office, etc. And with remote training, um, we were encouraged and really, you know, could imaginatively come up with some short courses like three hour, three hour sessions to do remotely or full day sessions. So, for example, I, I taught one thing on a topic that shouldn't be a surprise, Zoom itself. That was very popular. How do you use Zoom? So I did a three hour class with on Zoom. I think I did about 15 sessions with maybe a total of 45 uh, people and a few other topics, you know, some some uh, word formatting specifics or some intermediate Excel or whatever it might be. So one thing I enjoyed about that is just mixing things up a bit like that rather than teaching the same thing over and over again. Another thing uh, that I found uh, really enjoyable and rewarding and fun was getting uh, outside of sort of the Massachusetts geographical area. I over the last year or so, I've trained people from Montana, Mississippi, British Columbia, Chicago, Wisconsin, um, and a few other places I'm forgetting. And I really, uh, I really enjoyed mixing things up there geogra- geographically because of, of the remote training. I think also I've been more productive in another way. And when, when people ask me, do you like, uh, you know, did you did you like working during the pandemic or training remotely or not? First thing I'll always say is I do not miss the commute. I save 10 to 12 hours a week on commute time. And I plowed that into, you know, designing some of those other courses as well as training them. I think I mentioned earlier that, you know, I um, I've written a couple of books. So I plowed time there into writing my next book. And most of that time would have been used up you know, just going back and forth on paratransit. So I think I've been more productive um, simply because I've been able to plow that. um, I wouldn't call it wasted commuting time. I'm on my iPhone the whole time I'm doing that commuting, but definitely being more productive, um, being at the commuter on the computer um, rather than um, on my paratransit commute. And I'll stop with that. This is is Joe. So to answer your question about my workload is because, as we mentioned, I'm an itinerant, itinerant, excuse me, vendor for the for the bureau. My workload doubled or tripled. It was because, as I mentioned before, the state wasn't letting their counselors, their O and M's, their VRTs go out. A lot of that that work fell on us. And so the workload, just as a consequence of that, just doubled and tripled. And it was nice because they said, in a way, because they started opening up their thought process to doing remote training, that I could accomplish that with the right candidates for remote training. And so that worked out. It worked out really well. I mean, once you've gotten a student started, they're starting to get the hang of it when you say you can spend more time on advanced topics and work on there. Because again, they would say, and you're not traveling, you're taking that time between here and there to get things and you can do that more, more productively. I think one of the other interesting things that's happened 
is, as I said, I'm also part of the technology team for the Michigan Department of Education that um, uh, um, targets uh, students from K through 12 and a little bit beyond that. And um, that their workshops and stuff have changed. And I think there was a little bit, a little bit looking at that as a, as a push anyway, because it's so hard for a teacher of the visually impaired to take a time away from their workload because their workloads are really, really heavy as they're going from school to school. And now we're starting to do those workshops virtually. And that's been, it's been very productive that way. And also interestingly enough in that arena is they have a braille course that they're teaching and they're doing that remotely with sending out the tech book and working on the Zoom platform. And of course, this is for teachers, but it's also for parents of children who are blind or visually impaired. And my understanding in that it has been really, really productive. They've had a lot of interest, a lot of participation. And so that it's working out really well. And this is our final pie in the sky kind of question. And then we can get to uh, questions from the audience. But um, what do you see as future challenges and uh, future uh, other you know, future possibilities um, in, in this whole um, how, how has how has this virtual uh, learning made the future be different? So this is, yeah. This is Megan. Um, I, I think that that the virtual services are here to stay. Uh, I think that that's that's ultimately well, it can go both ways. I, I think that the, the benefit of it is, is that we do have an opportunity to reach more people. And we've all talked about that um, in, in, in many different locations. I, I had students, advocacy students from class from all over the United States and um, folks that normally would not have been able to take that class unless they had gone through the whole process of going to the center. And a lot of them were just um, even like work, working people, deafblind people that wanted to um, learn about, you know, uh, the different disability rights laws and how they could um, form coalitions of other deafblind people to advocate and so forth. And so that was just, um, I, th I think those kinds of things are here to stay. I think that, um, that option of providing virtual services to somebody, uh, particularly when then maybe somebody just needs um, a few a few services, a couple of services, as opposed to a total comprehensive, uh, intense program. That 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 is just it, it's an extraordinary benefit. It is more cost effective. It is um, again, you're going to reach a, a broader population. Um, you're going to reach people that normally would not want to um, go somewhere else uh, or uh, who would have to wait um, for somebody to come to their location um, in, in order to receive services. So, so I think that that aspect is it's really um, opened the center up to, um, to this broader impact. At the same time, conversely, I think that we do have to be careful because I, there are services that people really do benefit. There, there are people who really do benefit from coming to 
Helen Keller National Center uh, and or from receiving intense in-person services. I mean, it's more than just the services. It's that that sense of community development, of coming to a place where there's other deafblind people, where um, the staff and, and the, the whole community is kind of um, focused around deafblindness. I mean, deafblindness is not a weird, unusual, isolating thing at the center. It, it's it's something that um, is just a part of who you are. And I think that, that a lot of what, what people gain um, by interacting in person with professionals and other deafblind people is just that sense of, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just, <laughs> okay, I'm deafblind. For some people, it's like, wow, I'm deafblind, exclamation. This is my identity. Um, it, it's, it's awesome. Uh, for other people, it's just, yeah, okay, you know what, I've, I've got some challenges here, but but wow, look look at all these folks around me doing all this stuff. Um, so I, I would be somewhat afraid that in some cases, probably mostly because of expense, um, maybe that opportunity won't always be available to somebody where before you'd say, well, this is the only way it can be done. Um, now it's like, well, you know, we can provide these virtual services. So some people might lose out on that. Um, some of those in-person benefits because of it. Yeah, I would, I would think that would be, because I'm sure the bean counters would get really excited about the concept that, ah, mm -hmm. no travel time, <laughs> ah, no airline tickets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. Right. So, David, what do you think the future challenges and opportunities will be now that we have let this genie out of the bottle? I agree with everything. Um, Megan has said, I, I think we're, de we're definitely going to continue on with a hybrid model of, or I hope, you know, in person as well as remote. And for me personally, for example, uh, last week, uh, I went into the center three days and I worked remotely two days. Next week, I'm working remotely three days and going in for two days. But I think, you know, the benefits, I, I think remote training, when we're talking narrowly about technology. Um, I think there's great potential just to do a lot of refresher training with people who just need a little tweak on their technology a bit, you know, maybe, you know, three hours, four hours a day, every now and then to sort of get um, recharged a bit. Um, I think there's just huge potential there and and um, organizations like mine need to figure out how to market that and and sell it and and i think that could be very useful but the benefit of residential you know face to face not so much for the training uh but for having that experience of being around other blind people still is is fundamentally important i think for people who uh they're not just needing help learning technology but they're you know needing to learn how to adjust to blindness. Um, my favorite example is simply myself. Um, when I did the training I did at the Carroll Center, it was transformational for me. And if I had had to do that somehow in some remote fashion, I it just would not have had the same impact. Uh, this summer, you know, right now at the Carroll Center, we we have a summer program for for youth, and fortunately. They're doing that all again face to face now. Last summer they had it, but they had it remotely. And it's a great program 
Um, you know, it's nice you go to one of these programs and, you know, you're a young person and maybe you pick up some technology, some O&M skills. That's all great. But the really, you know, the, the stuff that's really transformational is just being, you know, together in a non-threatening environment with a bunch of other blind kids um, just to talk through stuff, make life lifetime friendships and stuff like that. That's not the type of thing that you can do remotely. And that, that I think that's just incredibly important for uh, young people. So I wouldn't want to see, you know, all this wonderful remote stuff replace any of that. That would really be um, a sad thing. Uh, but again, I'm very positive about the things we can do going forward um, with remote training. I think we've, um, you know, just learned a lot of incredibly important, useful things that now we got to uh, you know, move forward and um, incorporate those into into how we train uh, train folks and do rehab. Okay. And Joe, what what do you have to say about what you think the opportunities and the um, challenges are going to be? I want to echo what people have said. You know, I, I remember my process is a little slower, the gradual progression of, of sight loss. And I know personally, when I first started getting it significantly affecting my life, I just felt like I'm the only person out there. And I'm, I'm sure all of us have felt that at one time and said, so what do I do from now on? What do I, how do I go? What do I do? And I, I, I think the peer support groups are so important. What's interesting here in Michigan, they do what they call a mini workshop. And what we do is the counselors will refer clients who um, are not sure about going to the training center. Okay. And they go someplace, a hotel for about a week. And what's interesting is you see the people come in, they're unsure, they're not truly so what do I do with this process? And so on and so forth. And by the end of the week, it just it's just so much transformation. You're seeing people, they've made friendship, they're sitting at tables, they're talking to people. There was one person who had really just isolated himself, a little older person. And you just isolated. And when his family came to meet him, they said, what did you do to him? <laughs> and it was just wonderful to see that. So, you know, I've seen it from the practical sense. You do need that. You really, really, really do. And the training centers, as we know from research, that clients usually get a lot more intensive services over a period of time because they're, they're there. They can go from one class to the other class to the other class. However, having said that, uh, we have, you know, limited funds and we have situations where our training center can handle a lot, but not everybody. And so now that ability to do some training remotely and get services to those people without, without the idea that I'm spending that time going from place to place to place and you can do it more intensively, that's a real asset. So as I said before, we have a hybrid system here in Michigan, and I really think we're going to continue that. It's been the, the director has indicated, I, I believe, that they're going to keep looking at this, and they still want people in the training center, but they, only, they also want to see what can we do remotely, especially in access technology. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Chris, can I can I jump in? I, I sure. just had a had a crazy thought. Since this is an uh, you know, since this is a, a information access committee um, sponsored event, and since a lot of people in this uh, organ in this uh, you know in this session are techies, what technological? Uh, you sort of touched on you know on uh, uh, Jaws tandem and and Zoom and stuff like that. Was there any time when you said, geez, I wish I had some technology that did blah? Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, were there any gaps in uh, technological gaps that you wished you had or, uh, you know, you, you wish you could fill or, wish, you know, would, would love to see a, a new thing for? I, I, you know, what would be nice if you could figure out a video system so we could do stuff like cooking and cutting and we have a broader scope of what we're seeing there and it's easier to set up. That would be my ask. I think that would be nice. And it certainly would help when I'm evaluating person when they're doing, are they in the correct typing posture? Are they have, do they have their hands cocked up or cocked down? Are they where they should be with that? I would love to see something that was easy to set up. You could, you know, put there and have all those advantages. Well, I can, um, sorry, this is Megan Conway. Um, and, and actually, um, I mean, some of the deaf blind folks like I have, and, and, and a lot of folks do have video relay, services where we have a setup where it's just it's not a computer based but it's but it's um a uh like i have a large monitor with a camera um that enables me to just do that the video part of it so there were um folks that were able to just use that so it, it, it would be i mean I'm, I'm agreeing and saying that wow if there was something like that you know if we thought beyond the deaf person that needs to use um, ASL, um, some sort of a system that's just with, without having to go through this whole complex um, uh, you know, smartphone or computer, but just a direct video link type thing. Um, that would be, and have it be visually accessible, you know, so um, that a person could easily navigate it would be cool. One one very narrow type of little piece of technology that I thought could have been handy from time to time. JAWS has tandem, and that's great. And it would be nice if Narrator even had some some type of accessible way to take over the computer. Because I'll, I do train people sometimes. They're not JAWS users. And, well, maybe I need to figure out the NVDA way of, of doing uh, their tandem and stuff. But... Um, uh, maybe, you know, something, well, like I said, a narrator tandem of some sort where you're not, you're not dependent on JAWS and, and every computer has narrator on it if it's a uh, Windows 10 PC. I say that because Jeff is around, so hopefully. Right, yeah, maybe, exactly. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Bridges works for, I mean, Bridges, I always say that. Jeff Bishop works for Microsoft and uh, may have some input into that uh, for his team. Feedback noted. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Ira gang uses TeamViewer all the time, right? Uses TeamViewer to to drive your computer when you're when you're using their stuff. It, it gets if you get stuck. Um, but 
and, and you know, it's funny because look at the people now who monitor their kids, their babies right. with their with their video cameras. I mean, they've got cameras all over their house. It's like the nanny cam. I mean, there'd be a kitchen cam that you could that would be panoramic that you could watch somebody working at a counter. I won't tell give the, you a description of it. I won't tell the Jeff Foxworthy joke about that. <laughs> oh, Ray. Um, so I, we have, what, about 15 minutes left? You, you have about 18 minutes. 18 minutes exact. <laughs> well, well, we'll need some wrap-up time. So right. 15 is cool. what do you think, guys? How about some questions from the audience? Yeah. Yeah, bring it on. Bring Come it on, on hey. All okay, right. hands. Okay, so if you need to raise your hand, it's Alt-Y on your PC, Option-Y on your Mac, Star 9 if you're using a phone with a keypad, and it'll be in the middle of your screen if you're using the app. Once I give you the permission to um, unmute, you'll see an Asta Unmute on your screen. It'll be in the middle of your screen. So we will go to Sean. Good afternoon. It's been really helpful to hear your presentation, and um, you did answer a lot of what I was wondering, which was the how you had dealt with the uh, gestures for the, the touchscreen, which is obviously you said that was difficult. Um, I think we also kind of need a voiceover tandem at this point so that you can, as a voiceover user, help somebody else whose voiceover is acting and you know acting up i mean if if we're talking about asks for narrator is that something you would find helpful too because i could see plenty of use for that uh let me jump in and say that sounds like a great idea because again there are times you're training somebody and you'd like them just to be just you'd like them to maybe just be able to get a free app on the app store but, you know, it's sort of beyond them to be able to go in, in, into the app store necessarily, type in their user ID and on password and all of that type of stuff. So, yeah, that would be a very, very nice uh, um, thing to think about. Yeah. I don't want to put a – this is Joe. I don't want to put a wet blanket on that because I agree. I agree that would be really helpful. But what I don't see Apple doing is – allowing that because when you go to their Apple accessibility desk now, you know, that's something they can't, they, they, they just don't have that capability of getting in there and doing those kind of things for you that you can get from the, the, as opposed to Microsoft accessibility desk. Thank you, Jeff. That can actually come in and, and do something if you're having an issue that way. So that would be a big ask. I just don't see them coming off of that. Okay, next we'll go to Kevin. Great presentation. Um, really enjoy the panel. I was curious with um, either some that either were uh, virtual for the first time during the past 18 months and who are some going to hybrid. What are things that, I guess, work better face-to-face -face in your experience versus virtual? Like, were there anything that you were doing virtual over the past little while that you said, okay, once things I can go face to face, I'm going to do this first or have it this first. And the second part to the question is for those who you've been able to reach virtually, any thoughts of how to continue to 
have that broader reach. Well, the virtual is not going to go away. So if something's working virtually, then you can just continue it, right? Mm. Yes. Um, I, I, I think one thing is that um, uh, people need to uh, people need on on the side of service providers like the Carroll Center. We need to market uh, these things, you know, aggressively. Um, on the side of blind organizations like ACB. Uh, maybe also, uh, you know, advocating at the level of states to say, hey, you know, um, you, you know, get get more money uh, plowed into this. If you are a, you know, a state that doesn't have a residential rehab um, training facility or, you know, don't, uh, don't or don't, you know, don't have as well a developed uh, training network of um, remote trainers, do that work on that uh because as, as we've noted a lot of places are rural you know far away from urban training centers and there's just a lot of um opportunity now and people realize it you know it, it isn't like you have to sell this idea of gee we we can do this remote stuff or not it everybody knows that now um and uh, i think advocacy is needed on one side and marketing is needed on the on the other side but in that rural world, you know, the issue then becomes, is the great digital divide going to stop people because their bandwidth is so so small that you try doing a, a Zoom and, a you know, the reliability aspect gets crazier and crazier? Well, there is a bit that issue, but then there's also, you know, some of the folks I trained, um, you know, sometimes Wi-Fi goes a little bit buggy. So I would I would switch over to training, uh, you know, using speakerphone. Now that doesn't that isn't going to solve all of their bandwidth problems, but you know you you can do training with people whose Wi-Fi isn't very good for some things that aren't you know like doing Word documents or Excel files, things like that. Uh, but of course, yeah, that definitely is uh, an impediment. But it's 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 one you can at least partially overcome, depending on what you're training people in. Yeah, um, this is Megan. I, I, I think that that really it's it's about um, it's about keeping the possibilities open, realizing that your your preconceptions of what can be done or can't be done are not necessarily true. Um, I mean, just at an obviously an overall level during the pandemic, there was that realization that that many many businesses could keep operating if people worked at home. There was less, there wasn't that stigma of, you know, people who work at home or um, lady or whatever. I mean, people saw that you could be productive. Um, in, and of course, that there were also challenges to productivity so that the, there were supports that were needed to enable people to, to work from home. So I think if we can just um, keep that, that level of openness to what is, again, the ultimate goal is, we want to provide the services. We want to support people. We want people to um, advance and, and live their lives and get the skills and support that they need. So now we have this whole additional toolbox that we can open up and, and take out and apply, uh, hopefully, on a more individual level. Okay, the next person that has a question is Nora. 
Hi, um, I have a quick comment and a quick question. I, I thank you very much for your presentation, but I want to move quickly so other people have a chance for questions before you run out of time. My quick comment is this. Um, what I didn't hear, but I'd like to make sure everybody at least considers, is that uh, I agree with the hybrid model. You find out what works for your client and you do what's best to get the best results because of how they function. But um, the other thing is so, um, remote access has become such a big part of our lives and people with disabilities who don't get out much, um, it's such, uh, an efficient way to connect with other people. What, what you're doing when you're accessing them remotely and helping them is you're basically letting them learn how in a hopefully non-threatening environment, how to use these technologies and they get a lot out of that for the rest of their lives. So I just wanted to bring that up. My quick question is this. Um, uh, the work that I'm doing, I am accessing people by Zoom and, and uh, visual impairment is not, matter of fact, not everybody's even disabled. But um, I would like um, some suggestions on the best resources for finding out how to maximize accessibility from Zoom. And all you have to do is tell me where to go or, who, or give me an email address and I'd be happy to follow up later so you can get other people um, questions in. Well, Megan, you mentioned the Helen Keller National Center having. Yeah. yeah. So we, I was just going to um, say, so I, I co-authored a, we called it a white paper on um, making Zoom accessible for deafblind people. It has a lot of good information about um, general accessibility. It, it is particularly focused on uh, sensory loss, both vision and hearing and combined, but there's a lot of good basic um, principles in that paper. If you were to Google Helen Keller National Center Zoom accessibility, I think it would come up, but if, if it doesn't, I can certainly share um, the link with the organizers of this event or you can email me and my email is is my name can't do that -E can't do it. no no no, yeah, no no sorry not, okay <laughs> anyway so um you can get that information you know like i said i can get that information out um but actually one thing that i did observe was that there was a lot of work that was done um on this topic so I think if, there were, if, if you even just Google it, you're going to find a lot more resources than you used to from, from many, many sources, even from Zoom itself. Well, I'll, I'll mention this might sound self-serving, but I have a colleague, Heather Thomas, who wrote a book on using Zoom with uh, JAWS and um, VoiceOver. Unfortunately, we've sort of pulled it out of our bookstore because you know, Zoom has advanced so quickly that she felt it was a bit out of date. But who knows? We might put that back out there a bit later on, uh, updated. Um, but I think, you know, you'll find, you know, this will sound grossly self-serving, but, you know, at the Carroll Center, I've been doing short courses on Zoom. And I'm thinking, I'm, I think you can find courses on Zoom. I think Brian Hartchin maybe does those. I'm not sure. Mystic Access. Uh, but, you know, there are potential paid short courses for learning Zoom. Uh, and, and I'll say from the training I did, you know, two to three hours is really all you need. It, assuming, you know, you, you already have 
rudimentary uh, skills, but but there are resources out there. Um, I think there should be more, um, but but there are there are some now. Okay, mm-hmm. this, is, this is Joe, and I don't know that he still had that book out, but the last time I looked, it was. And that's Mosen, M-O-S-E-N dot O-R-G. That's Jonathan Mosen, who's familiar with the AC, those of you who have been ACB members for a while. You know, he was part of the ACB community as far as the radio goes. He had a wonderful book on that, and he wasn't charging for it. But then um, this COVID thing, he's made that free. So go look on that site. And I just wonder... David, maybe you can help me or Megan. Didn't Freedom Scientific do a webinar on Zoom? I thought they did. One thing. First off, Jonathan Mosen uh, pulled his book off of his website because he oh, just okay. felt it was it was out of date. I know I know um I know uh Freedom Scientific has done webinars on Microsoft Teams. I don't know if they've done any on Zoom. Yeah. I may be wrong about that. But you can certainly look at their website and see. Yeah. Yeah, yeah this is this is Megan. What one thing that, that really did happen was was that because everybody was using Zoom, there was this real push to improve accessibility. So and, and actually usability in general. So there were a lot of changes um, that took place over the years. So you so you no one resource is necessarily gonna give you everything. Um, up-to-date about it, so it's a, a good idea to sort of search out some different resources. Great. Chris, I think it's time to move to um, uh, hawking our other uh, our other sessions. <laughs> <laughs> Can I say one thing, Doug, if that's okay? Please. Um, Brian Harchin is giving a presentation tomorrow um, uh, with the um, bits for bits. I know it's another committee, but um, you know he he probably would be happy to tell you about Zoom and his course. So yeah, and he sells scripts and and does. there's a number of yeah there's and and training material and all kinds of stuff. So I would uh, I would definitely look at hartgen.org h a r t g e n dot org for more information on that. Tremendous guys, you guys uh, were spectacular and we're. Uh, Close to uh, uh, the end of the event here. Didn't know if you um, had any uh, last comments, uh, Chris or, or Doug or anybody else on the panel. Well, I will let I will turn it over to Doug and Ray to talk about the additional um, programs that both uh, the Rehab Task Force and um, and IAC have for the future week of this week the rest of this week okay let's do that first of all this is doug thank you very much um david and megan and and joe for for being on with us and uh sharing your expertise um which is vast and and we really appreciated it um if you're more interested in in uh, a sort of a higher view uh i don't mean higher uh a sort of more bird's eye view of rehabilitation and how it's been and how it's going and how it will be on Monday at 4 PM. We have three uh, directors of rehabilitation agencies on to talk about um, 
you know, what, how they've, how they've been doing and where they think, uh, rehab is going. So, uh, we really would enjoy having you be with us and seeing what, uh, what RSA commissioners dream of <laughs> and, and Ray. Sure. I'll be real quick. Cause I know we're getting close to time. Um, Wednesday night, 7 to 9 p.m., join the Information Access Committee for our financial uh, literacy program. All of us have to handle money at some point in time. Uh, um, I spend more of it than I bring in. I feel like sometimes I think we all feel that way. But um, come join us for that. You're going to hear three incredible, uh, awesome presentations, everything from credit reports to how to deposit a check with an iPhone. That's the part out the one I want to hear. So... Uh, Join us Wednesday night, 7 to 9 uh, Eastern Time uh, here at the ACB Convention. Yeah, and you're going to learn about how to handle pivot tables and handle your stocks and other uh, market symbol data in Excel from Kelly Ford and all kinds of great stuff. Monica, we need a closing CEU code. Yes, the closing CEU code is 19902. That's 19902. Marvelous. Terrific. Thank you very, very much for that panel. Uh, committee, thank you so very much. This was spectacular. You you guys were stellar. And uh, stay tuned. We've got a lot more programming coming up on the convention, uh, and uh, plus our primetime event tonight. So stay tuned. Uh, don't, don't miss Jack and Jill coming up uh, in, uh, in the next session, which you're going to hear about in just a second. With ghost stories, they're gonna Jack and Jill Fox are gonna read ghost stories over on ACB Media One. That's gonna be something I'm I'm hugely excited to uh, tune into. So, good night, everybody, and we'll see you in the convention.